This show is part of the RickersApp.com podcast network. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. I've enough, Oswald. Hello, and welcome to Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy in our very own galaxy, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Stephen Kent. I'm your other host, Suara Sala. And today, we're talking about freedom, independence, and self-determination to celebrate July 4th, our Independence Day in the U.S. of A., And we are going to be blocking out some time today to just go through listener emails as well uh, after we talk about the nature of freedom, what it means to us, and also how it might pertain to Star Wars. Uh, Joining us today, we've got our uh, friend of the show and uh, and repeated guest, Brittany Hunter. Brittany is an associate editor at FEE. That's the Foundation for Economic Education. Thank you so much for joining us, Brittany. Thank you for having me, Stephen. Always a pleasure. Yeah, well, it's nice to have you back. I think this is your third time on Beltway Banthas. Third time, yeah. Yeah, I think that makes you the most frequent guest, doesn't it? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I don't think we've... What an honor. I'm very honored. (laughs) Uh, Brittany, Brittany's been in past episodes. She joined us for episode 15 on Star Wars Propaganda, uh, because Brittany used to uh, to work um, at the Holocaust Museum, correct? Yeah, yeah. So she she brought a whole lot of a uh, whole lot of knowledge to our conversation on propaganda and how it's worked historically. And uh, she keeps coming back to bring us more. And uh, today, Suara had thought of you when we were um, we were coming up with the topic of talking about freedom. And he was like, Brittany Hunter. And I was like, Oh my gosh, that's what I should have thought. And here you are. <laughs> no, seriously. I'm, I'm okay with- <laughs> when I think of freedom, I think Brittany Hunter. Yeah, the last conversation we had, I remember us talking about a lot about your libertarianism and how that, I think we were talking about how that could pertain to Star Wars. And in the context of our last episode, uh, we were talking about those themes. And I just thought, hey, yeah, Brittany could be really great for this. And, you know, it's 4th of July weekend. Happy 4th of July, everybody. We thought this would be a really good topic. You know, freedom, which is something we hear repeated so often in the Star Wars universe. And it just happened to land on this holiday weekend where we're celebrating our freedom here in the States. So true. So true. And uh, what we really want to talk today um, about is freedom and what it means to us. And we wanted to do this thing um, to sort of pause and and do something in the spirit of July Fourth, and Suara had suggested suggested it initially, um, and I have to say it was not something that I was particularly jazzed about doing. Um, oh, thanks, Stephen. No, no, right <laughs> off the bat, I had I had to think about it a little bit, and then there then there was also the fact that I'm actually for the first time in many many years not excited about July Fourth, no. and I've been I've been having to ask myself why. Um, I think it goes without saying that America is in a time of great challenge, um, where the idea of celebrating this week, going into DC, like going through all the traffic, watching fireworks and waving little flags, it feels extra hard. And then I, I paused and I remembered Syria, Venezuela, Russia, North Korea, countries that are either in total violent upheaval or where you can be arrested or killed for even expressing the fact that you're unhappy and discontented with the state of the government. And here in America, perhaps what I wasn't considering going into this was 
despite how not proud I may be feeling as of late. I live in a country where I can actually say that I'm not proud um, and, and be allowed to feel that way and to express that in front of a microphone with all of you and share that with you and with Brittany and uh, not feel like there's going to be a, a repercussion to that. Um, and I want to open the floor to everybody to share what freedom means to you when you think about it in this context. And then we will discuss some notable Star Wars characters and how freedom might mean uh, mean something to them. And Brittany, I'm going to kick it your way first. Uh, I know this is something that you, oh, no. you, you think about and talk about often. <laughs> um, yeah. I do. And it's, not, it's from a very different standpoint because I don't, I don't particularly love the patriotism of it all, obviously, <laughs> from the, the radical libertarian viewpoint. Tell, tell um, us about that a little bit. I just, uh, it's, I think we have an amazing founding. I think it's very libertarian in its roots, but just like, even just thinking about like, oh, you know, we're going through tough times. I guess I don't see every single administration to me has been like, oh, it's just the same old thing. Like, yeah, we're going through, like, I, I expect that right now we're living in the better days and it's probably going to get worse. So I'm kind of like, all right, like, <laughs> stock up on my Bitcoin and... <laughs> be, the, be the libertarian the stereotypical libertarian that i am and prepare for the worst well you you are you are not a for that you're, you've definitely never struck me as a stereotypical libertarian in many ways mm-hmm. because you actually take it that extra step further into not being really interested in uh in politics status quo because one thing one thing that you you mentioned to me often is that you don't particularly view America as a beacon of freedom. You view all government as some sort of form of oppression. Is that, that's that's kind of like your, your, running, your running idea. Yes, but I think the best thing there's ever been, like I love a good overthrow. I love a good overthrow. <laughs> I, because, I, because I love constitutional law and I almost did the whole law school thing, like the founding to me is one of, it's one of my favorite things in the world. For example, like last 4th of July, and this will actually kind of shock you and it will embarrass me to admit this, like, I went to Mount Vernon, and I was taking pictures of fake George Washington and, like, his wife, and, like, I was so excited about it. And, yeah, like, I hate I hate all governments, but I like history. <laughs> <laughs> like, I do like the story of, of, I mean, I think it's very anarchist or libertarian at the root. I mean, we were basically saying F you to, to you know, Britain and yeah. doing our own thing and fighting for it. I, to me, that's, like, the most libertarian thing in the world, even, even one step further, anarchist, because... There was no, you know, conscription. You volunteered, and you—it was people protecting their own homeland. I think there's something so beautiful in protecting their own property. I don't know. I really appreciate you talking about these other countries around the world that don't have the same freedoms or the same sort of sense of liberty that we're lucky to have here in the States. Um, As I've mentioned on the podcast before, my parents grew up in an authoritarian state in Iraq and Kurdistan, and uh, thankfully my sister and I have had a much better life here in the States as American citizens. And it is helpful and very important to keep that perspective overall. I am a proud patriot, proud American. I'm proud of the revolution, 1770. And every July 4th, I do feel this wave of patriotism, even in the midst of this very, I will say, very dark time in which we are seeing freedoms and liberties being infringed upon all throughout, especially in terms of immigrant rights, in terms of minority rights, in terms of being free from, I would say, police abuses or from uh like being prejudiced against for uh, your background. I feel that we are at a time at at an inflection point with this administration where those are being threatened. Having said that, I do still keep that overall perspective and 
I think that the American experiment is a constant one. It's been going on for centuries and will continue forward. I genuinely believe in the strength of our institutions to limit what this you know, administration, which many have said has authoritarian tendencies, could do. And I believe that we have seen that in practice already with our court systems, with um, even Congress to some extent not allowing him to go the full extent that Trump that he wants to do. And I still have faith. You know, again, Stephen, we are, like you said, it is very easy to feel as though, you know, we shouldn't be proud of being free. You know, it's very, especially in our media landscape right now. You know, the media is doing very important work pointing out everything that the Trump administration is doing, especially after Trump's horrific tweet the other day about CNN. And we're seeing this sort of, uh, it really, it's, I, I take this very seriously. It's an absolute attack on the press and on free speech. And that's something that is at the very least very um, evident in the public conversation. It's very present. And I think at this July 4th, let us be grateful for our overall freedoms and how we compare to the rest of the world, but let's also be cognizant of how that could slip away. And I'm not saying that necessarily is, but at the very least, there are threats. Brittany, do you think there's such thing as too much freedom? Uh, I, yeah, I disagree with that completely. There's, there's well, I'm asking you. I'm not making a statement. It's, it's more of a question. In people's best interest to get along, um, and I think I think people will end up self-regulating. It's just in the natural in the natural order of, of how people are. Uh, may I interrupt for a second? Have you ever read uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, like uh, the natural state of man, like the noble savage uh, sort of writing? So Locke is my go-to guy on that. I mean, gotcha. I don't always agree with him, but as far as as my you know where where rights are derived from and such, I tend to be more of a Lockean on that. Nice. Very nice. So, I want to talk about Star Wars here. Because um, freedom does mean different things to different people. Um, I think one one of the things that, you know, like when I think about, I think, Brittany's definition of freedom is that there's almost, uh, well, I mean, so let's just go with the word. Let's go with the, with the, let's go with the anarchy word. So, um, for me, that evokes... Yeah, the big A. That evokes fear. Like, the idea of anarchy invokes fear in me. And part of what um, I consider to be freedom, part of that is freedom from fear, right? And I think that that's something that actually plays into a lot of different people's view of how freedom goes. Because if you are constantly living in fear of certain things, then you're not exactly truly free. And so I want to start with one character that I wanted to bring up. And then everybody can feel free to round robin whatever character comes to their mind um, and maybe how they might see freedom. So I want to start with the way Palpatine might explain freedom. And this is not to my credit of what I just said, (laughs) undermining anarchy. But one thing that I think is key to his philosophy as a politician and as someone who is trying to conscript the galaxy um, is to play into the very thing that I just said, which is that he is offering people freedom, freedom from fear. Uh, The time after the Clone Wars um, was a, a period where people were tired of killing, of bloodshed, of chaos. They wanted order, and they also wanted safety from what they perceived to be a threat in the Jedi. And I think one reason that he was able to get the rise to power that he did 
uh, was by offering people freedom from fear. And I think that's something if, if you asked him what people want, I bet him and his view, he would say that that is something that people of the galaxy want as well. So I just want to step in here. Uh, I've talked about the Revenge of the Sith novelization before in regards to the Confederacy, the independent systems. But when we were uh, talking about doing this topic, I remembered when I was a kid reading this book and giving insight into Palpatine's machinations and how he was manipulating the public conversation. And I read the book, I saw the movie, and I was really fascinated by that. And I remember this. You know how critical I am of the prequels generally, but... I actually remembered this. This was actually a bit of a political awakening for me because it made me realize how authoritarians tend to view it as, tend to make their citizens view the conversation as you can either have security and peace or you can have, quote, freedom and chaos. My impression of what Palpatine was doing was he was saying, if you allow too much freedom, if you allow too much um, decentralization, if you allow too many planets to be left to their own affairs, then you'll have something like the Confederacy, you'll have the Clone Wars that have ravaged the galaxy for years, and I am stepping in here as your uh, benevolent dictator to tell you that I will, like he says this specifically in his uh, speech to the Senate, I will offer you peace, security, and I, uh, correct me if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think he actually said freedom in that no. speech. Yeah, he didn't, and it, that left an impression on me as a kid. I was like, he's saying everything, you know, that's for a good and just society, except for freedom. He's like playing into people's deepest fears and just not letting them think that freedom is necessarily a good thing. Brittany, what do you think of that? Like, you know, how someone may make people afraid of freedom almost. Yeah, no, I think actually you bring up a good point because that's largely what shaped my views is, um, I mean, I was 16 or almost 16 when 9-11 happened and I was very much, I, I was not an anarchist back then. I, I like loved George Bush. I loved anything George Bush did. Um, but I just remember, I mean, I was terrified, you know, and so it was justification for everything. I didn't realize how terrible the Patriot Act was or all these things that we were doing were because right. there was that fear. And I think it's funny. I think I go, I go back to Beef Vendetta every time I'm on here. <laughs> I think I always find parallels I find interesting, and I'm gonna do it again. Great movie. But um, I mean, that's the same. That's the same thing in that movie. You know, it's all about um, freedom from fear. You know, let us remind you. You know, why were why you have to listen to me? Because I kept you free from all these, you know, these terrible things. But um, yeah, I mean, fear is probably the best motivator. That's the best way to get people united against a common enemy, and they'll do anything. They'll listen to you. Fear is the enemy of freedom, it seems like. like it, it is. Yeah, yeah, it's like you were saying, that freedom from fear, that's such a real thing, especially when we're viewing it in this context. It's very it interesting. One thing that I wanted to bring up uh, on the topic of Palpatine and fear, or I'm sorry, Palpatine and freedom, is the Sith Code. So off the top of your head, Suara, do you know the Jedi Code? There is no emotion. There is peace. There is no ignorance. There is knowledge. There is no passion. There is serenity. There is no chaos. There is harmony. There is no death. There is the force. Wow. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that is the Jedi Code. Now let's hear the Sith Code. Peace is a lie. There is only passion. Through passion, I gain strength. Through strength, I gain power. Through power, I gain victory. 
Through victory, my chains are broken and the force shall set me free. So when I hear the Sith code, I think of the opposite of what I read in John Stuart Mill on Liberty and what I've read from Bastiat, which is the whole idea of the do no harm principle uh, in pursuit of liberty. You know, you cannot um, pursue your freedoms if it is taking away from the freedoms of others and taking away from other people's um, natural rights to pursue their own destiny. And so the Sith code to me seems like the ultimate um, display of selfishness where you are instructed to steamroll others in pursuit of your own glory and your glory makes you free. Um, Mm -hmm. Brittany, does that sort of ring any, any philosophical bells for you? Yeah. And I definitely agree with what you said as far as it's it's like the antithesis of, of, um, of freedom, (laughs) what I, what I consider freedom. Um, because unless you have a a just reason for steamrolling, as you say, you know, someone else, um, I think the perfect way to describe it is is don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. I love that. I think that is a very <laughs> short and sweet summation of it, you know, <laughs> what freedom is. Yeah. You know, I find that interesting. My mind is jumping ahead to thinking about the general fiscal argument we're having in the United States about taxation, about how much the richest 1% should be taxed and um, about redistribution policy and how business works because it is, you know, I think that's a very ideal way of putting it, you know, just don't hurt anyone, don't steal anything from anyone. But the realities of our economic and societal life are so much more complex and that I'm not saying that, you know, necessarily rich people or middle upper middle class people necessarily, you know, steal from others, but rather there are so many avenues to take advantage of the system if you have money and if you come from a relatively rich background that if you don't have those, it's so far, it's so hard to get ahead. And I'm, again, my mind's going down a little bit of a rabbit hole, but those who do not have those resources, those who are economically uh, unprivileged do not have that necessarily that freedom to make it their way to the top that they don't have that economic mobility i i'm very curious about your guys thoughts about this question of economic freedom and the freedom you know the pursuit of happiness really which is what this country was founded and based on and how that figures into our politics today because from my point of view as a uh liberal uh democrat like I know that we, or at least I know for myself that we do not have a system in place and that there's so many barriers in place that keep people from making it up there that, you know, like people at the uh, bottom of Coruscant can't really make it to the top towers. (laughs) I think the system is, is cronyism. It's when the government gives subsidies Mm. or creates these monopolies that, that, that allow this to happen. But one thing that I, I write about personally a lot is is poverty, and that's why I'm a free market capitalist. I mean, that's why I, I believe in these things. Um, that that it really will. Um, excuse me. That when you allow it to to you know occur unfettered by government restraints, it it allows people to flourish and be prosperous. Um, it's the reason people strive so hardly to work under the radar. It's the reason there's still unlicensed food carts. You know, these are people who want to get ahead, and they're not going to let the government stop them. And I, you know, I think the government is the barrier, I guess. Perhaps. 
Um, you know which character in Star Wars never let any system get in his way? Hmm. Han Solo. <laughs> Han Solo is a character, you know, from the minute we see him, he's a has a devil-may-care attitude. He is just working for himself, and Chewie will take whatever job comes his way. Thankfully, he has the resources in order to do that. And, um, you know, someone who's just inspired countless people worldwide. I mean, you talk to most people and ask who their favorite Star Wars character is, they usually say Han Solo. It's because so, he's a rogue, man. He's he, a rogue, uh, yeah. yeah. He's, just, he's just out there doing his thing. There are two things with Han Solo that I think of with freedom. And there's the personal aspect, the fact that he's a guy who doesn't much care for attachments and commitments. And, spoiler, him and Leia don't make it. You know, they, they end up going their separate ways. Um, Han for a Solo, couple of years. Well, it still <laughs> adding a couple of years doesn't mean it doesn't happen, which is what I said. Um, they, they end up splitting. And Han Solo goes back to his rogue ways. Um, he goes off to be um, a, not a race car driver. Uh, a speed racer, <laughs> a uh, swoop driver. Swoop driver, swoop Swo- pod swoop racer. racer, swoop racer. Swoop racing. I think that's what it was in Bloodline. And then he returns to smuggling. And yeah. uh, there was just sort of this sense, I think, in Han Solo's mind that he was never cut out for this family thing. And it's probably because the family was falling apart as, a, as, a, uh, you know, as it relates to Ben. And Ben turning to the dark side and becoming Kylo Ren. I think that made him doubt himself a lot when maybe he could have um, been a successful father and a successful husband. But for the most part, he's a guy who freedom to him, uh, I think it's not being tied to other people uh, except for his friend Chewie. And that is, uh, that's probably the, the exception there. And then there's also the aspect of his job. And we can talk a little right. bit about, we can talk about the, as, the, like the job of a smuggler. The legalities um, and Prohibition. <laughs> prohibition on spice. Um, what is spice actually? <laughs> uh, I, think, I think of spice as being heroin. That's what I think of it as. Oh man, this puts so many like blemishes on our favorite childhood character. <laughs> For sure, yeah. But isn't it? Don't we know that spice is not? And isn't spice is drug? Yeah, like uh, Brittany. No. And like, yeah, no, no, like Brittany. In like some Star Wars comics or something, they reference like no. being high on spice or something like that. <laughs> it's like. I was trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm like, no. He's but, a but, he's a drug yeah, runner. But, but Brittany, according to your it's libertarian fine. sentiments, shouldn't that oh, be I'm okay? Fine with it. I yeah. Know. I have to ask, what did you think he was smuggling? I don't know. I never thought about it until this moment. I don't think I've ever thought about it. Only political refugees from tattooing. You you know, you know, Brittany. I bet, I bet you were think, I bet you were thinking, it's not my business as long as he's not hurting me or stealing from anyone. Exactly. That is exactly what I thought. (laughs) Um, I was just thinking about how great it is that every like strong female character is like freedom from she's trying to find like freedom from her traditional role which mm-hmm. I, I find very interesting and you see that in every single one i mean leia in a lot of ways like she's not your typical princess she's a warrior totally um you what i don't kill me for not remembering the name the last movie jen urso in rogue one the girl who is the girl yeah, yeah jen urso we're talking about rogue one or episode yeah. seven rogue one okay yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you have, I mean, these are, these are women, and I mean, you also have Ray in, um, in episode one, or episode, 
what is it? You don't, you seven, don't the, the newest one. Um, <laughs> Yeah, totally. Talking about the real world politics of it, um, you know, a lot like in the vein of uh, Leia's incredible portrayal by Carrie Fisher and how groundbreaking that was. We still talk about it like uh, in film and representation in general, um, you know, that feminism, you know, being like uh, equal to, if not better than one of the guys. But you're right, Brittany, that sense of freedom she brought to it, Carrie Fisher brought to it in Leia's portrayal and what Leia was fighting for. She was fighting for freedom for from the Empire, for her people. Like, it's in the opening crawl, like, fighting for freedom uh, for her people in the galaxy. It's, um, yeah, I, I bet, like, you know, you seeing, like, Leia, like, relatively short compared to Darth Vader, like, talking down to him and the other Imperial officers, you were like, yeah, that's how I want to talk to authority. <laughs> Yeah. All these movies where she she's not a damsel in distress, and none of them are. None Never. of these strong you know, characters have been that way. Never. I mean, in The Force Awakens, I mean, I love Finn. Finn is one of my favorite characters, <laughs> but he was pretty often the damsel in distress there, and Ray was the yeah, one saving was. him there. It was awesome to see. Yeah, honestly. that that poor yeah. thing would have gotten blown up on Jakku in that village if, uh, if he was all by himself. Aww. But uh, you I mentioned you mentioned Jen Erso and. Mm. Jen Erso, I think, in many ways, is the Lady Han Solo. Like she, the like the that. way that I think about her is is different than Leia and Rey, and I think it's because I don't think she plays nicely with any sort of group, and I think if if she had lived past Rogue One, I don't think she would have stuck around uh, the rebellion, stuck around with Cassian Andor. I don't think that's where that was going. I think that she as a person does not trust other people and she feels best when she is out on her own. And I mean, by best, I mean most secure. Hmm. Um, I think you Maybe. saw that with her inability um, or she, you know, she ended up on the outs with Saw Gerrera's group. She also doesn't trust the rebellion and her, her sentiment towards fighting the empire was kind of like, I'm just sort of trying to keep my head down and do my thing. Um, yeah. I think I think of her as just being someone who doesn't fit well into collectives. Um, she's not able to fit herself into those boxes, and it's not because she's not principled. It's just sort of her. She has a roguish personality, and it, in that, I think Han Solo does as well. Now Han Solo came firing back into Episode Four to save the day, and he stuck with the rebellion, but he didn't continue to live that military life. He went back out of the Republic military. Didn't join the Republic military. Right. Um, and went back to doing what he does best. I think of Jen as being sort of the same sort of rogue. Right, so I'll first say about Han, uh, I think like a lot of why he was with the Rebellion was for the sake of his friends and then his eventual wife, Leia. Uh, yeah. But back to Jen, I actually disagree. I find her to have uh, really had a hero's journey by answering the call from her father to destroy the Death Star. And I felt that, you know, you say you don't think she works well in groups. Thing is, she was raised in a group with Saw Gerrera and his merry band of rebels and um, was really hurt when Saw abandoned her. And it seemed that my interpretation watching the film was that she gets people to gravitate around her very easily. She's a very natural mm -hmm. leader. And I, 
she was very inspiring to the crew of Rogue One that went to Scarif and really I think that so maybe she's a she's, leader not a follower well yeah, yeah that that but also I have a feeling that she felt trapped for so much of her life she was trapped but again going back to fear versus freedom mm -hmm. she was so trapped by the sense of fear of the empire and what it would do to her and her father and she but talking to Cassie and talking to Saw and having that catalyst see what I did there <laughs> of um you know seeking the Death Star plans let her fight for what she genuinely believes in against this authority that she's always resisted and find that sense of freedom I had something I wanted to kick uh, kick y'all's way uh, this is a this is a disjointed thought but I think uh, I think the two of you can help me carry this thought home sure um Jen, I'm sorry, not Jen, Ray and Luke Skywalker, uh, both are heroes from the desert planet. Um, they are more or less victimized by their circumstance. They are not a place where they want to be. They spend their evenings, their days, looking up into the sky, wanting to be somewhere else. They, they both represent the same kind of archetype. And I think to them, freedom is the ability to get out of the circumstance that they are in, um, to overcome the geographic situation that they're in, the economic situation that they're in. Luke doesn't want to be a farm boy. That's not the that's not the life that he wants for himself. And Ray, I think she just wanted to be anywhere else than what she was doing. And she she didn't want to become that old woman in the village of Jakku, yeah. um, sanding uh, sanding old broken parts for a living. Um, and I think about you mentioned earlier. You mentioned. Uh, in your bit about about Trump and America today, you mentioned immigration, and I think about these two characters as escaping the world that they are on because they want to go somewhere else. And I think of the plight of the immigrant um, and the ability of someone to immigrate uh, if they so choose. Like, how do you think about freedom when it comes to the idea of immigration? Because I think about like Ray and Lucas sort of being um, these these characters that you could sort of frame as being. Um, the mindset almost of, of immigrants and they, they want to be somewhere else. They don't like where they are. And there's circumstances, usually laws that prevent them from being able to go to the places that they want. Um, I think freedom of movement is one of the most important elements of overall freedom and pursuit of happiness. Um, if you want to pursue your dreams and you're willing to, to work for it, um, it's just a matter of honestly how you get into the border. If you want to cross in someone's yard and they're okay with it, I think that should be fine. I'm not, you know, I don't think there should be a border wall or anything like that. I think the more diverse our economy has, the better everybody is. It's just a win-win situation. Yeah, I agree. Definitely with that point. I want to talk about Luke and Ray for a second because, um, you know, they have very different senses of freedom in their uh, character journeys. While Ray obviously does uh, bear a lot of similarities to Luke, she has very different priorities. She doesn't want to leave Jakku. She wants to stay there waiting around for her family. She is lacking that um, sense of belonging. You know, she's on Jakku, but she's so, you know, she's been raised there uh, from childhood. Well, we don't know, uh, we don't know that. Well, I mean, if, at least from when she's five years old, I mean. Uh -huh. okay. Like, from five to 19, she's there um, 
not knowing better, not knowing where to look for her family. Mm. Obviously, she learned about space travel. Obviously, she learned how to pilot exceptionally well, but she wouldn't dare take herself off of Jakku in a life she had gotten so used to just in case, you know, she says, my family is going to come back for me, but she's just denying it to herself. But Luke is like, no, I'm done with this place. Like, (laughs) bye, Felicia. I'll like, you know, fly off. Like, you know, literally like we don't see, we don't see him mourning his aunt and uncle. I mean, we do see him a bit mourning his aunt and uncle, but like, it's very momentary. Like he, he he gets more worked up over Ben dying, Ben Kenobi dying than his aunt and uncle. Yeah, yeah. Um, And, uh, you know, his sense of freedom is like being part of this wider cause of having that, um, you know, all jokes aside, Luke's uh, desires for freedom off of Tatooine and being part of the Rebel Alliance and being part of the fight against evil is deeply resonant with uh, so many of us. You know, I think like my favorite scene from A New Hope and I think a lot of people's favorite scene is the twin sons when Luke is looking out at the horizon and the John Williams force theme is swelling and you can just feel what Luke is feeling in that moment. And it touches you at at your core for your own desires, for what your own dream is. Ray has some of the same thing. She definitely doesn't want to be on Jakku, but she feels that she has to be there because for the sake of her family and having that freedom of being able to love her family once again. That's interesting. I think that's, uh, that's a keen insight because it is true. She does try to go back to Jakku. She, if she has her choice in that movie, or I, she she makes her choice. But if if I think if she had her way, um, she makes a decision to protect her new family. Yeah, that's what. It yeah, is. she she wants to go back yeah. um, at, at at the beginning, and whenever I see her in the sand looking up at those ships. I guess there is that. There's more that flashback quality where she's looking at the ship leaving, mm-hmm. and she's thinking. Where are my parents? Where's my family? But but not she, necessarily yeah. that she wants to be on that ship. Well, um, I think that actually there is some of that in there as well. She's wrestling with those conflicting desires to yeah. be with her family, but also to go with the flow of the force and get off of this planet and pilot to somewhere else. Much to our incredible sadness, we actually lost our call with Brittany. Uh, she's got a storm rolling through Atlanta, Georgia, and it was uh, making it really hard for her to actually keep a keep a good signal with us. So uh, we will look forward to having her on another time. Uh, Swar and I will close this thing out. This has been really cool to talk about just the idea of freedom and what it might mean to different characters. Uh, we've never done an episode like this before. This is kind of a fresh, fresh little format. Well, it's uh, like I said, it's the right weekend to do so. So why not? Yeah, yeah. Now or never, right? So we promised we were going to do a longer round of listener emails than we normally get around to uh, in, in an average episode. So let's pivot on over to thoughts from the listeners in our email inbox. Let's get started with Jess Shitara. Hey, Jess. Uh, thanks so much for writing in. So this is how her email goes. You may have touched upon this in a previous episode, and it's escaping my memory, but do we know the actual benefit of being part of the old republic? I think about real-world united nations like ours, the Eurozone, even NATO, loosely. 
Clearly, there are economic benefits, security and military protection, and maybe legal protection and social programs. Aside from the Republic's common currency and some humanitarian efforts like laws banning slavery, it seems like the only benefit to being in the Republic is prestige. Before the Clone Wars, there was no Grand Army, so what are Republic taxes paying for if there is no military? What social programs do we know about? Is the Republic just like an even less effective United Nations with taxation and force-sensitive monks as peacekeepers? I ask because there are plants like, like Mandalore that were not part of the Republic and seemed economically sound with their own trade agreements with other systems. What do you think? Great question, Jess. Thank you so much for writing in. Really awesome question. So there are a lot of questions there to key in the interest of time. I'm going to kind of hone in on one. So the reason people join the Republic is to be involved in trade deals. Uh, I think what they are really trying to set up is a system of, of alliances that are not based on military force where people are benefiting um, from trade with other systems. Um, there is a right. lot, a lot that goes into that uh, in terms of taxation of trade routes and taxations on different planets and sort of the taxes that people are paying to be in the Republic. I think it's a, a great point that like people are paying taxes uh, in the Republic and they don't even have a military to protect them. And that's a point of contention. And that is something that frustrates a lot of members of the Republic. I think Mandalore is a good example where they probably are able to set up um, their own economy uh, with other Mandalorian worlds. Um, and their and, own solar system, yeah. Yeah, um, and actually be able to trade amongst themselves because they also have force to back themselves up as well. Right, but I would imagine there are definitely uh, keen economic benefits to being part of the Republic Trade Union and having that diversity of resources and services from throughout the galaxy come into your system. And, you know, like we were discussing with Brittany during our episode, that sort of open trade is beneficial in the long run. It really, um, you know, you can compare it to what we would have done if President Obama was able to get the T the Trade Pacific Partnership or TPP uh, in place. And we would have had, you know, much greater and uh, more streamlined trade with uh, the emerging eco strongest economic force in the world, which is <coughs> Asia. Yeah. You know, it, that would have been really great. Protectionism is yeah. the worst. Uh, All right, this next email is from Ross Brown. He was a guest on uh, last week's show. He said, hope you had an awesome holiday weekend. Recently, you had someone on to talk about Thrawn's, uh, the Thrawn novel. Was he a great guest? That was uh, Ross. He was fantastic, and he helped cover uh, when my voice went out. <laughs> so he asks, Chuck Wendig's Aftermath Trilogy and Marvel Comics' Shattered Empire both address what happens when the Emperor is given the shaft. Ah, uh, I see what he did there. <laughs> the shaft. Thrawn mentions to Night Swan his plan to be in a position of influence uh, on the selection of the Emperor's successor, on the belief the Empire will survive a change of leadership. But would it? Um, he kind of asks another string of questions there. Um, I want to hone in on this one again in the interest of time. Um, Thrawn mentioning that he's trying to be in a position of power so that he can influence the Emperor's successor. And he asks in the follow-up, uh, or was the Empire really doomed to collapse due, its, due to its own inherent structural weaknesses? So I think we've been asked that question before in the past. Yeah. Like, can the Empire actually sustain the project or um, the, the experiment that it is? I would say that it can um, I, agree. I would say that it can, and it can do so through sheer military might. Mm -hmm. um, sheer military might um, can keep the galaxy or, or the universe in order um, and make everybody um, subjugated to the Empire. It doesn't have to be a successful economic experiment um, for, the, for 
the empire to maintain itself for the emperor to remain in power. I mean, again, kind of look at North Korea, like North Korea, it doesn't have to be successful um, economically for the tyrants to remain in place. Now, North Korea has had multiple tyrants. They pass it down through family. So I think Thrawn was absolutely thinking the right way um, to try to be in a position to get a good successor um, after the emperor eventually dies of old age. You know, I think a better parallel would have actually been uh, communist Russia, the USSR, you know, uh, having that uh, amount of jurisdiction over such a large area and incorporating so many other uh, Eastern European countries into your union forcibly and requiring them to, you know, play um, ball with this uh, economic state. And it just like, um, as for the question whether the empire would have, uh, you know, like uh, not been sustainable in the long run, I agree with you, Steve. And I believe that Palpatine had multiple plans in place. I don't, while he did as we know from Aftermath, consider the possibility of his own death and defeat at Endor, you know, a real possibility. Um, He definitely, uh, you know, I think, and I mentioned this before, I think that corruption and that um, competition between Imperial officers actually plays into Palpatine's and other elites' favor in terms of being able to have them play off one another, to have them, you know, sort of, try to uh, outdo each other while he remains at the top controlling the entire operation and i think that the yeah. first order works to that way works that way as well to a large extent yeah you've got people gnawing on each other's ankles yes. up up the ladder and you never really get to the point of going after palpatine's power because you're vying for power with other people down in the middle of the ladder you hit this ceiling and it's usually your peers not the actual emperor himself so we've got another really short um, email from Joseph Moore, and he says in all capital letters, <laughs> what are Star Wars Disney's plans for the next Star Wars celebration? Hashtag Star Wars celebration. Through skipping in 18, bundling with Star Wars land. <laughs> so I think, I think the question is asking, what are, what are Star Wars Disney's plan for the next celebration, considering they're skipping it this year? Yes. This year, or is it skipping? Like 18? skipping eighteen. They're yeah. skipping two thousand eighteen. Yeah. yeah, so they're skipping two thousand eighteen Star Wars celebration, and it's also going to be coming around the same time as Star Wars Land is Yay. actually a thing. Oh my gosh! I can't wait. Fan oh, it's going to be so much fun. Um, I, I think the the answer to your question is I have no idea. I know it's going to be awesome. Um, two thousand nineteen is going to be a big Star Wars oh, year. Yes. Oh, big yes. Star Wars year. Now, that would be the year of Han Solo. I mean, Han Solo is still slated to uh, come out in 2018. 2018? Yeah. Okay. But okay. you know, that is like put into question about whether... And I'll get to oh, this... 2019 is episode 9. Yes, exactly. Okay, got it. Exactly. And, um, you know, we'll get into the question about Han Solo. I'll get into that in my Bantha fodder. Um, now, as for plans, you know, yeah, like... Ultimately, we technically have no idea, but I have a strong feeling it's going to be in Anaheim in California. They've Mm -hmm. had multiple ones there before. I think, to my knowledge, it would fit the typical pattern of uh, Celebration's location. So, yeah, that's what I'm betting in. I'm just so excited for Star Wars Land. It's going to be amazing. Oh, maybe that'll be the launch. Oh, my God. And we could, like, go to both Star Wars Land and Celebration. Sorry, right. we're, for, we're freaking out <clears throat> over this. Dignified, dignified. All right, our next question is from listener Seth Maloney. Any thoughts or feelings on the canonical geopolitical position of Naboo as a planet? 
The Phantom Menace shows a wealthy urban world with a borderline cast-like feel for the Gungans with jokes about Darth Jar, Darth Jar inserted here. Um, every other bit of prequel content ignores Naboo itself in favor of its residents. Padme is a literal hero of the Republic, but was her stature elevated because Senator Palpatine was made Chancellor? And with Jar Jar being what he is, what he is, is him being made a senator, a sign of respect for his actions, a nod towards the elevation of Gungans in Naboo's society, or their role in a galactic cosmopolitan culture. So my answer to the first question is that Padme did not necessarily have her stature elevated because of Senator Palpatine becoming Chancellor. She was elevated um, by her successor, Queen Jamila. She was appointed to be the senator of Naboo. However, obviously, she was probably... She was a beloved queen. They wanted her for a second term. She was exceptionally qualified. Queen Jamila... Queen Jamila... think Think about maybe they're not besties. They might not be best friends. She might consider... Her to be someone who could rival her again for the throne, but and and yeah. in those cases, typically you give that other person like another job. Like when you're trying to get your your political opponents away, mm. you send okay. them away as like an ambassador <laughs> to another world. So I almost wonder if like Queen Jamila, if they, there was almost a fear that maybe Padme would one day wake up and actually want that second term. So while I doubt that actually happened, I would love to see that in a series, in a House of Cards series on Naboo. I think like, that would be really cool. I mean, is, is your belief that that could not have happened because they just seem so peachy in their one meeting in the movie? Um, I don't... that's what politicians do. <laughs> I, 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 I don't think that George Lucas was necessarily thinking that deep for Nubian politics. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think like he just wanted to show that Padme was very beloved on her own planet. And also, um, you know, Padme said herself that <laughs> even though her yeah. people wanted her to serve another term, she said, no, I'm done with this. I believe in democracy and term limits. God bless you, Padme. You are awesome. We could use you in our real world. Um, you know, I think that they were genuinely chummy with each other. Um, by the way, I just want to like go to talk about Jar Jar for a second. So Jar Jar is actually a representative in uh, the Republic, not a senator. He's a representative of Naboo for his people. And this is common for worlds with diverse and polar populations. Um, I think on Mon Calamari, you also have like separate dignitaries, uh, Mon Cal and a Quarren uh, representing their respective people. Um, But one is probably a representative and one's a senator, right? Yes, one's a representative and one's a senator, totally. But uh, back to Jar Jar, I think... um, I, oh man, uh, you know what? I'm I, I haven't really entertained the uh, like why sent Representative Banks like became what he is that much. I try not to think of the character generally that much at all. But with this question being presented, I think yeah, totally. That's totally what happened. I think it was you know appreciation for his actions during yeah. the uh, uh, Naboo invasion, and I think that you know Boss Nass and Padme being grateful to him as well. We're like, hey, you should come with Padme. You should be a representative, no. <laughs> and like you should. I mean. I just, but also, I just want to say, it just seems to make no sense. But that's the only thing that makes sense to me about this character. So I have, I have a, another cynical comment, and, and it kind of, oh uh, boy, it kind of mir- <laughs> it mirrors my my thoughts on Queen Jamila. And this is something I pulled off of, a, a, or I saw on a, on a comment thread on Reddit, and I actually agreed. Was that what if Boss Nass again? That that honeymoon period of liking Jar Jar at the end of the Phantom <laughs> kind of faded, and and he Probably. was like, "Get this guy out of here," I, you know. He- Head cannon accepted. <laughs> yeah, like I, it's I think it's believable that like 
there's like this, you know, kill two birds with one stone thing. You get him, you get him not only out of Otagunga, but off of Naboo. So, so, so Boss Nass was uh, the Queen Jamila in the situation and Jar Jar was Padme. Exactly. I, I don't know. I just, uh, I always, I always think about my, uh, my boy, John Huntsman, who went over to be, uh, be the ambassador to, uh, to China. And he was considered to have been relegated to China to get, uh, get a political player off the field. Oh, I want um, John Huntsman back in as a Republican leader please we'll, we'll take you please, back please have, um, have, have john, please john huntsman i'm not a republican but please go back to them please <laughs> he started an organization called no labels um oh, cool. really good dc based organization they deal in bipartisan politics and they do lobbying uh, to put pressure on building cool. consensus very cool i like the organizations called cool. no labels Much you should respect. check it out Much respect for that yeah um this uh this is from mark sutter Mark Sutter is from the Tarkin's Bookshelf podcast. Yeah, Mark Sutter has been a longtime listener and uh, follower of the show, and uh, we've had many Twitter interactions with him, and good to hear from you, Mark. Mark writes, in light of current politics, it seems as though Palpatine's Machiavellian scheme may have been absolute overkill, instead of working both sides against each other. Couldn't he have just overinflated the risk of a dangerous group and used the galaxy's fear of a common enemy to unite them? That's an interesting question, Mark, because I think he did both. He yeah. did he did work both sides against each other, and he found the common enemy being the Jedi. He united everyone in the Empire or in the Republic around this fear and paranoia of this hyper-religious cult called the Jedi who were, uh, who were running the military and also trying to stage a coup. And just think about it. Like, Jedi who are usually... Um, you know, just general peacekeepers who will come when the, the call uh, requires them. Now they were being generals. Now they were being at the forefront of battle and had all of their abilities with a lightsaber and the force on display. So I think that would certainly uh, inflict more fear into the hearts of Genesis. And yes, obviously they knew about Jedi and their abilities beforehand, but I believe that during the Clone Wars, especially in the context of your question, uh, Palpatine definitely fanned the flames and probably... You know, as we see during the Clone Wars, he was very manipulative of where the Jedi would go to and whom they would interact with and, you know, how they would be perceived overall. Palpatine was controlling so much of that narrative from both the Republic and the Confederacy sides. So I think that's, yeah, a great observation. Yeah. And yeah, the he Jedi were the did common both. enemy. Yeah, he, he got the galaxy uh, fighting each other. And then in the in the like the flames of that conflict, he found a common enemy for everyone to unite around and uh, create a great and glorious empire. Um, Love you, Uncle Palpy. <laughs> um, this next message is from listener on Twitter, Captain Alex Eight. Hi, Alex. Uh, what he says is, uh, so what strikes me about the politics in the Star Wars universe is the unified planetary governments. There is usually one ruler per planet with some notable exceptions uh, of Mon Cal and Naboo, where there are two. Uh, but the, for the most part, an entire world ruled by one government. There are no Earth-like examples where there are 190-plus governments. None. And he goes on to ask what it would look like um, if the Empire came to an Earth-like world. All right. Oh. So if the Empire was invading our solar system, um, what would be the world's response? Like would our, it be, our Earth's response. Yeah. Would it be fractured, organized, self-serving? How would Earth respond? And you get this in alien invasion yeah. movies, right? Yeah. Where every country's reacting differently and everyone's behaving their own way. So like in that movie, um, shoot, what was the most recent alien movie with Amy Adams? Um, uh, 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 Arrival. Arrival. So 
you have you have the Americans and the Chinese kind of like guiding the world, basically. Like if the China if China hits those the the, the rockets first, it's going to be all out war, right? right? And I think with the Empire, you're going to have the same sort of thing. You're going to have star destroyers in the sky, and the UN is not a body that is going to govern these decisions. Oh, totally. there, there's yeah. there's no there's no mechanisms in place in our international bodies. They're going to make things maybe NATO will work, but honestly, I don't think NATO was built for an extraterrestrial force. It was built for a very specific purpose. I mean, it was still built being for de- Eastern Europe. It was still built for overall defense, and I think that I'm more inclined to think that you know, typically in war in invasion nothing unites uh old rivals better than a common behemoth of an enemy but i do think now are we talking about the galactic empire yeah, invading the like galactic Palpatine's? empire okay now i first of all would like be welcoming to uncle palpy <laughs> and like you know offer him my services and hopefully like he helps me tap into my force sensitivity and i'll uh-huh. be his new apprentice like you know who vader who um but no seriously uh I, th- I have a feeling like we would unite and try to like make a common uh sort of no but here's the thing we would be we'd basically like look like um peasants to this greatly technologically advanced empire and i don't think like I think that we might actually welcome invasion because we're we're a society at large that loves technology and advancing so much, and I think that they would actually we would actually see the empire potentially as hey this could be like our salvation almost maybe save us from climate change come on Palpy save us from climate change oh my gosh <laughs> that was the that was that was an interesting take <laughs> hey you know what like I mean they they definitely have climate control and like a throughout the empire so why not deliver us from climate change deliver us palpatine this is our last uh email from uh listener isaiah leslie hi isaiah he says i hope i'm not too late with these questions you're not who would you say are the most libertarian-minded characters or races of people in Star Wars? Uh, would smugglers like Han Solo or Lando Calrissian, for that matter, would the inhabitants of Bespin be a good example of libertarians in action? I actually, yeah, you kind of answered answered your own question there. I was thinking very much um, the in the ideal sense, you have Lando Calrissian um, capitalizing on his criminal activity. And in many ways, um, taking taking his 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 business in that sense and making an entire community out of it, it's 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 very interesting. Um, the one the one area where he goes awry is of course colluding with the Empire um, to receive their blind eye so that he can do business. Um, that's sort of where you where you cross the line, I guess. I don't I don't think, I wouldn't say he crossed the line. I would say he was doing what was right for his people. And I just want to let our listeners know I am a steadfast defense defender of lando he did what he had to like he was right he had no choice anyway let's uh, move on to the second part of isaiah's question we obviously know comedy is a part of star wars both in the comedic and sometimes awkward attempts <laughs> charger uh actions of characters and their wor- worlds but 
Uh, I don't seem to ever recall ever seeing uh, an in-world comedian act character in the canon. <laughs> Can you think of one? If Kathleen Kennedy would allow for more quirky, creative characters and stories, not likely given the fiasco with the Han Solo movie. I disagree, Isaiah, respectfully. Um, what would, do you think about a story arc, series, or comic about a comedian trying to make a living at the time of the Empire? <laughs> I, I, I just, I just want to say, I've seen this question, I want to see the Stephen Colbert of the Star Wars universe. I want to uh-huh, see him, I want uh-huh. I want to see him making fun of Palpatine. I want to see him cut through the uh, lies and BS that he's offering the galaxy and to the Confederacy. And... Which wouldn't be allowed. That wouldn't be. That I mean, be I mean, we don't know. We don't know like the uh, state of satire during the Clone Wars. I mean, we had propaganda. Why can't we oh, the have clon- the Clone Wars? I was okay. thinking of during the Clone yeah. Wars, not during yeah. the Empire. Obviously, during the Empire, nothing's allowed. But yeah, yeah, I want to see the. Stephen Colbert of the Star Wars yeah, universe. Yeah, that, that kind of speaks to like the one thing that I want right now out of canon is a look at the media. I want yes, to know how exactly. the Hollow Net works. We hear about the Hollow Net a lot, and I don't understand what it is. Like, is what's the news structure, and how does it uh, evolve through the course of Star Wars? But to the the, the question of, of a comedian, so that reminds me about Jar Jar's fate. Jar Jar's fate is street performing. Is he uh, is he one of the best comedians in the Star Wars universe, in your opinion? Uh, that might not be speaking exactly to his question, but I'm just answering you, Isaiah. Uh, Jar Jar, he, after disgracing himself in the Senate and, right. and largely being blamed um, for the rise of Palpatine in the Empire, um, he is last seen in one of the Aftermath novels, Yep. Um, being a street performer on Naboo, he yep. makes kids laugh and grown-ups roll their eyes. That's basically sort of the gist of uh, how Jar Jar lives out the rest of his life is a, uh, a street performer and comedian. Probably <laughs> not the answer you wanted. I would love to see a movie with like a very funny face on it, but they would have to do it with new characters and not over um, overdo the comedy of some characters that we already have, such as Han Solo or Lando, who are like low key funny. Um, I'd love to see a character that was built for comedy. Yep. Again, Stephen Colbert of the Star Wars universe. That's what I want to see. Folks, that brings us to listener email. We really appreciate all those messages, and we look for them every week so that we can read them on the show. This has been a lot of fun. This has been really great. Thank you so much for your emails, and keep sending them in in the future. July 4th, let freedom ring. All right, and that brings us to our final segment, Bantha Fodder, where Suara and I share one thing that's been on our mind this past week, uninterrupted, and uh, just put it out there into the ether for everyone to uh, to receive. So the first thing that has been on my mind and I've been dwelling a whole lot about is the idea of Vader's redemption. I've seen a, a, a spike, I think, in commentary um, in Star Wars fandom, Facebook, Twitter, blogosphere, about whether or not Vader... Uh, was truly redeemed at the end of Return of the Jedi. And this is something we could spend an entire episode on. So just for the interest of Bantha Fodder, I, I have to say I'm kind of disturbed by the idea that we're sort of looking, doing this revisionist history on the, the redemption of Vader um, and whether or not he found his way back to the light. Redemption is a really funny word. It, it, as a word, it sort of makes it sound as though you've had the slate wiped clean, right? That's sort of what that word sounds like when you say Vader was redeemed, as if everything was wiped away. Well, it's not. Um, Star Wars, in many ways, is just as theological as it is political, and Star Wars draws from 
religion and different religious traditions. And so you do have to approach it in that context as well. Now, you may not personally believe that sins can be forgiven by a single act of stepping back into the light, but Star Wars is sort of based off of this general the uh, theology. And what goes on with Vader is an act of redemption, not an act of forgiveness. Um, he does not get an opportunity, nor does he seek one, to be forgiven by everyone that is that he has wronged. I mean, given he's he's helped with the 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 space holocaust, like he has massacred um, thousands, if not millions, of people. Um, what he does is he runs up against a wall and realizes he's in the dark. He needs to get out of the dark, and that he has done horrible things, and that there is light in him, and that he is going to give into that instead of continuing to build upon the darkness and the evil that he's perpetuated. And in that is a redeeming act. Redemption is something that you do when you make that act um, of being saved, of pursuing that light, stepping out of the lifestyle that you were in into a new one. There's still a rocky road ahead after you began to seek that redemption. Um, Vader's life ended too soon. And we'll never really know what would have happened next. I would have always been fascinated to see what would happen if Luke brought Darth Vader back to the rebel base and said, he's our friend now. <laughs> um, who knows? But this is, um, this is something that's really tricky. And we always have to kind of think about what Star Wars is about, where it comes from. And also that um, the idea of stepping back into the light is never as simple as wiping the slate clean. It's a, it's a long and rocky road. Suara, what's uh, your Bantha fodder? What's, uh, what's on your mind these days? Very nicely said, Steve, and I overall very much agree. So uh, we haven't had commentary here on the show about Han Solo as we haven't recorded in a little while, and uh, we are going to be talking about it and the general politics of Hollywood and Lucasfilm soon, but I thought I'd just offer my two cents right now. So I just want to start off with saying I absolutely 100% trust Lucasfilm and Kathleen Kennedy with the direction that they're going in and the films, the amazing films that they're giving us and the process that they're going on with Han Solo right now. I was very excited for uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller to be helming the project. I've been a fan of their properties like the Lego Movie 21 and 22 Jump Street before. I think that they're brilliant uh, directors and I was very uh, sad, you know, to have seen them be fired from the Han Solo project. But as reports started coming in, which I'm sure many of our listeners have uh, read, <clears throat> it was a, it became increasingly apparent that Lord and Miller were taking significant and I would say, frankly, arrogant strides and directorial uh, uh, yeah, strides with the making of the film. They were having Alden Ehrenreich and other characters uh, deviate from Lawrence Kasdan's script to a significant degree that it changed the plot of the movie some and you know again i still love lord and miller but kathleen kennedy made absolutely the right call to um remove them from the project and while i don't find i, I will just say i don't find ron howard the most inspiring director i like i said was very much looking forward to lord and miller's vision i think that ron howard will simply be a conduit for the ghost director of lawrence caston and that's fine i think that you know, Lawrence Kasdan knows his character inside and out more so than anyone except for uh, George Lucas and Harrison Ford. Like, he really crafted these characters' words and, like, uh, his persona in The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. And I'm still looking forward to it. I will say, though, it is okay. You know, while I trust Lucasfilm and Kathleen Kennedy, it is okay to say 
they made a mistake with Lord and Miller, and they know that, and they've owned up to that, but they're simply taking the steps they need to as a production company to ensure the uh, steady, smooth flow of the film's release or production and release. All right, and with that, we are at the end of episode 34 of Beltway Banthas. Thank you so much for sticking with us and listening to our special July 4th themed episode where we talked about freedom, what it means to us, what it means in Star Wars. You're listening to this on July 6th, so that uh, or after, and we hope you had a really nice Independence Day, Independence Day weekend, and uh, that you're resting up this summer. Um, we look forward to being back in your feeds the week after next. Uh, I'm Stephen Kent. You can find me on Twitter at Stephen underscore Kent89. That's Stephen with a PH and Beltway Banthas at Beltway Banthas. You can find me on Twitter at Suarezale1. You can also join uh, my Facebook group on uh, music and Star Wars. It's called Sounds from a Galaxy Far, Far Away. You can just like uh, request to join and I'll add you. We discussed John Williams, Michael Giacchino, and just music and Star Wars, everything in between. And uh, yeah, like, I uh, can't wait to talk to you guys next. May the force be with you. Always. <laughs>